It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. This is the famous opening line of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. But how well it describes the scene in the biblical book of Exodus. It really was the best of times. The Israelites, who for generations had been crying out against their slavery, they'd been miraculously rescued by God. They are now safely out of Egypt, and God is physically present with them. They literally hear God talking to them. In a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, God guides his people to a bright future. God makes a covenant with the Israelites. And he gives them a law meant to guide and protect them and to nurture their relationships with God and with others. In this covenant law, God commands first that the Israelites not worship any other gods, nor must they make any idols. And if God's people keep this law holy, God will lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey And it will be their inheritance forever. It was truly a season of light, the spring of hope. And the Israelites rejoiced. And yet, for the Israelites, it was also the worst of times. Sure, God was leading them. But he brought them into a desert where there was little water and no food. And despite witnessing God's miraculous wonders in in Egypt, despite being in God's physical presence, the Israelites were afraid, doubting, and discontent. Visions of this bountiful promised land fade quickly because for them the horizon is always this shifting sand. They complain about the food and They talk about what they missed about Egypt, the land of slavery. And when their leader, Moses, goes away on an extended conference with God, the Israelites fashion an idol out of their gold jewelry. The golden calf they made, they called God, and they bowed down to worship it. So Moses gets back, and he sees what the foolish Israelites have done. He goes before the Lord seeking God's wisdom and leading these despairing people. In a bold move, Moses asked to see God's glory and to know God's character so that he could lead God's people well. And God grants Moses' request. It says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord The Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth 
generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This passage tells us about the core of God's character. God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, they broke their covenant with this God. The expected and just punishment for their sin was death. But God shows mercy to his people. Instead of killing them, he affirms his covenant with them. They sin, and God shows compassion. You may have heard this quote before about the ideas of biblical justice, mercy, and grace. And it says that justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So it sounds like mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. This is certainly a simplified understanding of God's wonderful and complex character, but it could be a helpful starting place for us. The Israelites deserve to die for their sin, but because God is merciful, they do not die. God's wonderful mercy, it's not a one-time thing or, you know, it, it keeps going. God shows mercy to his sinful people over and over, not out of weakness of will, but out of overwhelming love for these people. In fact, the whole Old Testament is really an epic story about God's mercy, faithfulness, and love for his people, even when they sin horribly against him in every generation, God can't stop himself from showing mercy. It's God's nature to be merciful. It's no surprise, then, that Jesus, God's son, would preach these words in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Jesus not only preached about mercy... He showed mercy. If we watch Jesus, we learn that mercy is not a static thing. It's not a once and done thing. Mercy is dynamic. It's progressive. Mercy is a movement leading to good things. If we stick with Jesus, he will constantly expand our understanding of mercy, and he will call us to be merciful ourselves. Now, this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, kind of sounds like the conundrum of the chicken and the egg, which came first, uh, being merciful or receiving mercy, right? But there's really no problem here. Since mercy is a part of God's character, we can only know and show true mercy by learning from the master. So let's learn about mercy from Jesus. And it seems like everywhere Jesus went, people were crying out to him, Lord, have mercy on us. Do you recall those stories? Most of them are about people with physical ailments, the blind, the lame, people with leprosy. They all appealed to Jesus for mercy. All of these stories play out the same way. So today we're going to look closely at two of them. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, you can turn to Matthew 20. Matthew 20. I'm going to read verses 29 to 34, and it's also up on the screen if you don't have either of those things. 
As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Here's our first lesson about mercy learned through the person and ministry of Jesus. Mercy leads to healing. This story is a picture of the unmatchable power of Jesus' mercy. You need to understand that in the first century, people with diseases, disabilities, or mental deficiencies were a financial burden to their families, and sometimes even a health risk. So many of these people were cast out of their homes, and they were forced to live on the streets. They would lay in public gathering places like the gates of a city or along busy trading routes and beg for food. Even though their desperate need was obvious to everyone, their fellow citizens treated the sick and needy like a problem, a contagious disease, or a piece of litter. For the sick, it was an existence of desperation and despair, exclusion, invisibility, and isolation. When the sick and suffering cried out for mercy, Jesus responded every time. Where it says Jesus had compassion in verse 34, this literally means Jesus was moved in his bowels. I'm not kidding. You can giggle if you need to. Um, It sounds funny to us, but this really isn't a story. It's not talking about a bowel movement. We need to understand that in Jesus' time, people didn't locate their emotions in their hearts like we do. They located them in their bowels, in their gut. So if there are emotions churning down there, you're going to be moved to action, right? Think about having the worst indigestion of your life. You were moved to action, weren't you? That is where the emotions were in the first century, down in your gut, in your deepest places. That is where compassion is born. And it is such a powerful feeling. It moves people to mercy. Jesus heard the cries of the blind men, saw their desperation, and he felt it in his gut. Like his father, Jesus was moved with compassion by their suffering. And Jesus shows mercy by healing. My favorite part of that Bible story is that when Jesus restores the sight of the blind men, it says they immediately follow him. Jesus not only shows mercy by, to outcasts by healing them, he makes room for them among his disciples. We're starting to see the second outcome of mercy. Mercy leads to belonging. This is even more obvious in a second story in Matthew 15. So now go to Matthew 15 and I will read for you verses 21 through 28. Leaving that place, 
Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffers terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she, she, is, um, excuse me, she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. It's a short story, but something huge is happening here. We hear Jesus tell this Canaanite woman that as the Messiah, he has come to redeem God's chosen people, the Jews. We expect Jesus to explicitly turn down her plea for her daughter's healing. The disciples are annoyed and perhaps scandalized that he is being addressed by a Canaanite woman. After all, women didn't really speak to men in public unless they were family. And the Canaanites were one of the people groups that God warned his people to avoid for fear that they would fall into idol worship. If Jesus were a regular man and a regular rabbi, he would have walked right on by her no matter how desperate her situation. But Jesus was not a regular man or a regular rabbi. When the Canaanite woman boldly compares herself to a dog scrounging for scraps under the master's table, she stirs up compassion in Jesus. She knows that Jesus has the power to heal her daughter. She's heard about him probably. Word is spreading about Jesus' power. So she will risk everything, her reputation, rejection. She'll risk it all for her little girl. So she does a very scandalous thing and approaches the Jewish rabbi. Her need and her bold faith leads to Jesus' mercy and her daughter's healing. Something huge is happening here. Do you see that the kingdom the gates to the kingdom of God, they're widening. Jesus came to redeem the Jews, but social outcasts and Jewish enemies are receiving mercy too. Remember from your Bible reading that many of the Gentiles were faster to recognize Jesus as the Messiah than the Jews were. While the Jewish leaders were busy in Jerusalem plotting Jesus' death, Canaanites, Samaritans, Roman centurions were coming to the Jewish Messiah, crying out for mercy, seeking healing, wanting to follow. Not only did Jesus have mercy on them and heal them, because of their great faith, Jesus welcomed them as disciples and honored citizens in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus has mercy on a Canaanite woman, 
It is a foreshadowing of the ultimate expansion of God's kingdom. Because Jesus is merciful, all who believe that Jesus is the Son of God may enter the kingdom, regardless of ancestry, religious tradition, gender, social standing, regardless of anything that once excluded people from belonging. Listen to these beautiful words in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Mercy is not just about God showing compassion on chosen people and allowing them to live even when they sin against him. And mercy is not simply about God's plan to redeem the Jews. And mercy is not only about Jesus having compassion on the outcast and sick in society and healing them. God's very pulse is mercy. So his son, Jesus, lived out the biggest, the most beautiful plan to welcome people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, women and children as well as men, slaves and prostitutes, rich and poor, the influential and the powerless, people with great names and people with no name, any repentant sinner, all believers now share in the kingdom of God. Mercy leads to belonging. And Jesus makes strangers and enemies into a people. My absolute favorite passage in scripture is from the book of 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And it's, hear this as good news for you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How many of you have spent your whole life wanting to be cherished by someone? How many of you have ever felt profoundly alone, like you're constantly wandering without a sense of self or purpose or belonging? Middle school is tough for a lot of us. For me, it was terrible. For no good reason, in sixth grade, a group of boys decided that I would be their constant target to pick on. The boys were relentless in their teasing for three years. They made up a derogatory song about me. And they sang it in public whenever they got the chance. I was humiliated. And I felt intensely ashamed, as though though there was something fundamentally wrong with me. I began to hide. Hanging out with my teachers more than my friends, because teachers were safe, and staying home from extra school activities. For me, being social in those ages meant I read books about other people having fun. 
I knew that I didn't belong in the world. And if, I, if belonging meant that I was someone's second-rate mascot, then I wanted none of it. But inside, I was crying out to be known, to be loved, to belong. It's no wonder that this is my favorite verse. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. For once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the best news that I had ever heard. To be part of a people, but not just any people, to be part of the people of God, that is a big deal. But not just to be part of the people of God, to be God's special possession, but not just to be part, not just to be God's special possession, to be God's beloved child. Does it get any better than that? Do you know how I transformed from a shame-filled, lonely 12-year-old girl into the confident woman I am today? It's because of the mercy of Jesus Christ and the church. Around the same time that I was withdrawing from my peers, my parents became part of a core group of people that planted a church. If you've ever planted a church, you know this. It is all hands on deck. And that means the teenagers, too. Adults in my church showed me respect. They acknowledged my spiritual gifts, and they asked me to serve. They affirmed not just my service, but my personhood. Their respect and love was like an incubator for my self-worth and my maturity. I have so many friends who consider themselves Christians but do not participate in any expression of church. They tell me that they don't need church to follow Jesus, that church isn't essential to their faith. Now, I could stand here and make a very good theological argument against that, but here's something more compelling. I don't participate in church out of a sense of obligation. I don't view church attendance as a stamp validating my faith for the big guy upstairs. I come here each week and I share my life with you because I am bursting with joy that I belong to God and to you. We are God's beloved children, which means you are my family, my place of belonging. And that makes me want to dance and sing and raise my hands in praise. And let me tell you, I don't dance in public, but I would do it for you. It is so hard to follow Jesus in this world. Of course, church is essential to my faith. How could I take even one Christ-like step if I didn't have you to encourage me or hold me accountable? Where would I find a safe place to detox and debrief from the wars that are going out, on out there or in here if I didn't have people like Sherry or Alyssa or the elders or the altar team? If I didn't belong to God and I didn't have your fellowship, how would I survive? Is there mercy on earth greater than finding where you belong? Yes. You probably thought that was a rhetorical question, but there is. 
There is a movement of mercy that is greater than healing and belonging, and it's this. Mercy leads to freedom. Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin and death. None of this healing or belonging would be ours unless Jesus intervened for us. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners. We all break God's law. And we deserve death. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sin. Listen to this truth from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And we have to keep going. Hebrews is so great. I have to read you a little bit more in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Many of you have heard of this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and you've probably heard of it because you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The Ark actually was the most sacred object in all of Israel's history. It was a box which held a few things, but one of them were the stone tablets that Moses had engraved with the Ten Commandments. The Ark sat in a room called the Holy of Holies, deep inside the tabernacle and then later the temple. The ark was the only man-made object that the Jews considered holy because it was where God was physically present with them. Here's a picture of what the ark may have looked like, may have looked like. Remember, we don't know where it is. Uh, It's made of wood and then covered with gold plating. And sealing the top of the ark was a lid made of solid gold. And on the lid were gold sculptures of cherubim, their wings stretching inward. When God spoke to Moses, he did so from between the wings of the cherubim. On that lid, once a year, the Jewish high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the lid, making atonement for all of God's the people, excuse me, making atonement for the sins of all God's people. And this lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. I think that this is really beautiful symbolism. God gives the law to guide his people and protect them. And it, but his people, they're, they're human. They can't, um, by nature, be, being sinful, they can't keep the law and they need redemption. So God seals the law with his mercy. It's as though God's mercy is a beautiful crown to an already gracious law. Humans can never keep the law to perfection. We could never make final atonement for our own sin, but Jesus could. He was moved to compassion over our suffering, and he shows us mercy. By his death on the cross, Jesus paid for our sins once and for all. And now we can be healed, we can belong, and we can be set free from sin and death. 
I think we in the 21st century often mistake the idea of mercy with clemency. Clemency is a power of certain public officials like the president or the governor to uh, lessen the punishment of a convicted prisoner. Last Tuesday, a Florida man named Marshall Gore was 25 hours from death by lethal injection when a judge stopped his execution. Though a jury had found Gore guilty of murder, the judge felt his sentence didn't take into account some important facts. So Gore remains alive. That is clemency, and it's a pretty big deal. But it is not the same as the mercy we have received from God. Imagine yourself a criminal. You're tried, and you're found guilty of breaking the ultimate law, God's law. Your sentence is death, and now you are waiting on death row for your execution. Mercy is not just God lessening your penalty from death to a life in prison. Mercy is God smashing the chains around your wrists and feet, shattering your cell door from its hinges, crumbling your prison to ash, and setting you free to live forever in the kingdom ruled by this God of mercy, grace, and love. Never mistake mercy for clemency. Mercy is so much more. And speaking of more, there's one more thing we need to learn and consider about mercy, and it's what Jesus teaches in his beatitude. This idea that mercy leads to mercy. If we've learned anything about mercy today, it's that Jesus is our example of a merciful life. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Knowing what we now know about mercy, it's a little hard to imagine that any of us could be capable of showing mercy like God. But Jesus' beatitude indicates that we, you and I, can do mercy. What might that look like? How can we show mercy? Remember what we've learned. Mercy leads to healing. It's being moved in your gut with compassion by the suffering of the sick and the outcast. Do you know any of those? Who is crying out for mercy in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, or even in your church? As a pastor and as a chaplain, I hear cries for mercy every day. A few months ago, I visited a woman named Jane in one of our inpatient hospice units. She has Alzheimer's, and I caught her in what we medical people call a window of lucidity. She looked sad and shriveled. So I kneeled by Jane's bed, and we talked. And we talked about those times where she feels herself getting confused and the sadness that seems to crawl over her when she feels her mind slipping. And we prayed together for God's comfort and peace in her confusion. It was a really sweet time of fellowship. Before I left the room, I introduced Jane to her doctor. And she says to me, oh, another doctor. And I was thinking she was getting confused. And I said, I'm not your doctor. And she patted my hand and she says, yes, you are, dear. And I said, I just decided to play along. And I said, really, well, what kind of doctor am I? And she says, dear, you are the doctor of goodwill. Friends, if you have 
seen and experienced the mercy of God, you can show mercy to others. Simple acts of listening and powerful acts of healing and everything in between, mercy comes in many packages. We can do much to bring mercy to the people in our world. People need us to hear them, to see them, to listen to them, to cry out with them in their suffering, to get down in the dirt with them and look for hope together. How can you, with your unique gifts and your unique motivation, bring mercy, healing, body or soul to the suffering in your world? Jesus is calling you to do this. Mercy also leads to belonging. God transplanted us into his family. He showered mercy on us and made us a family forever. How can we, you and I, now make space in our lives for people who are lost like we once were? Who are our Canaanites? The people who we or society treats as less than because of their race or gender, their strange philosophies, their politics or their poverty? How can we create welcoming space for Canaanites in our lives? Maybe we need to change our hearts before we can make space at our table. Jesus has given us great examples in his ministry and his death on the cross. These are examples of mercy. So now I want you to look around this room. Look left, look right, maybe turn around, smile at someone. (laughs) Of those people you've looked at, who can you invite out to lunch or over for dinner? I really challenge you to do this. Use your Sunday afternoon where you're usually probably pretty lazy and invite someone to come to lunch with you. And when you get there, this is what I want you to do. I want you to talk about how you've received mercy from God or by another person. And then I want you to talk about who your Canaanites might be. Who are your outcasts? And then I want you to just be practical and talk, brainstorm ways in which you can show mercy. Because if we're merciful, then we will continually receive mercy from God and others. And our lives will grow ever richer. So let's ask God to help us do this. Will you pray with me?